Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Co. is a Brampton-based multidisciplinary artist and longtime designer, exploring personal experience as a gateway to broader human concerns. The bi-ethnic daughter of a scientist and an artist, Kim's process and interests combine both influences in sometimes unexpected ways. A member of the Redhead Gallery Collective since 2018, she presented her second solo show of 2019 there called Heart Space, a multimedia installation exploring the human heart as anatomical structure, emotional repository, and vehicle for metaphor. Kim has participated nationally in exhibitions, residencies, and mentorships, and won awards including grants from the Ontario Arts Council. A popular and experienced arts educator, speaker, and juror who since the first COVID lockdown has offered free bi-weekly virtual studio parties on YouTube. She teaches online at the Halliburton School of Art and Design and at the invitation of groups around Southern Ontario. Please help me welcome back Kim Lee Co to the podcast. Welcome, Kim. So happy to sit down and chat with you this evening. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you back. Previously, you were with Cal. Yes, I'm flying solo. Well, this will be fun. (laughs) (laughs) I like where this is going. (laughs) See, I'm the loose cannon, so who knows? Not warn me. (laughs) (laughs) Since we're going to start with who you are, why don't we start a little bit about how you personally got into the art world? Oh, boy. Well, as you read in my bio, I have artists in my family. And my grandfather was a professional landscape painter in oils. And he was my first art teacher. And in fact, entered me into my very first juried show when I was seven years old, a drawing I had done. I I had no idea he was doing that. And I didn't know what a juried show was. So when I won a prize, it I was very surprised. At seven? Yes. Very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And so you obviously haven't stopped being an artist because you're still very creative. So what came after that? Well, I was very lucky to go to a high school with a fantastic art teacher, Don Boutros, who subsequently became my friend. And I should mention, you know, growing up in a family of artists doesn't have only pluses going for it, although there were many pluses. I remember at the age of nine, my mother being totally unimpressed by the fact that I was drawing perspective because it was just assumed that I should understand perspective. (laughs) So, so, you know, it could be quite uh, challenging. That's a lot to expect. (laughs) 
So uh, anyway, I had a wonderful art school, art teacher in high school who was kind of a model for me as an artist and a human being and also as a teacher. Yeah. So that was great. And then I, I had my first solo show at age 18. I should mention that. But then I took a long side trip because at university, I fell in love with graphic design and pursued that for many years, during which time I really rarely found myself able to do any art. Yeah. So after you did the design, I mean, we know from previous podcasts, it was through your design world that you met Cal. That's right. And then you ended up coming back to art. Can you give people a sense of how that journey came about and where you are now a little bit? Yeah. So at the turn of the century, I had been very ill for very many years. And there was something momentous about the turn of the century and millennium, in -hmm. fact, not just century. And so that somehow shook me up and I started to paint again little bit by little bit. I had been a portrait painter in high school, among other things. That was what I did instead of a part-time job, for example. And yeah, I started off by doing portraits, small portraits. And I sort of found my way back into it. But it was a very off and on thing because I was very unwell. So when I really got back, it started with going to Halliburton School of the Arts, as it was then known. Now it's Halliburton School of Art and Design. And I took a portrait class there as a way to get back into things in 2003, I believe it was, or 2002. Anyway, it was with Brian Smith, who is a fantastic art and figure teacher and another one who subsequently became a friend. And that was the beginning of my coming back into art. And I Oh, you know what I just realized? Mm -hmm. Maybe it was after that. I found a notice in Desserre, the art store, for an open life drawing session in Oakville. And apparently it was a really ancient notice. They they obviously didn't refresh their bulletin board very often because it referred to an obsolete location and all this stuff. But I called it up and spoke to a woman with a strong Boston accent who then spent 10 minutes sort of trying to persuade me not to go. That person subsequently became a dear friend of mine, Rena Sava, who's a fantastic artist. And it was like my trial by fire. If I could get through that, you know, attempt to dissuade me from joining, then I was in. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And so I would go to these sessions. It was every Tuesday morning, I remember. And, you know, bearing in mind, I had been bedridden and reclusive for years. And it took everything I had to go to a three-hour life drawing session with eight people and Mm -hmm. have conversations with them. And, I mean, honestly, it was unreal how challenging that was. But I also recognized how much joy it was giving me and that it was, it felt like it was saving my life, honestly. You know, Kim, I have to say, most people would say, I came back to art and I started little sketches. You went for like the most complex thing, the figure. That's my home. Portrait and figure are my home. So Mm -hmm. 
no matter what else I do, a, you know, weird sculpture installations or digital stuff, whatever, portrait and figure is definitely uh, home base for me. Yeah, it was the right place to go. You know, it was also bearing in mind, I had done life drawing since I was 13, actually. My art teacher had me join the adults in grade seven. I went to OISE in the evenings, part of U of T, to join the adults for life drawing with nude models. And, you know, I drew regularly until I was about 20, I guess, 21. So going back to life drawing was the absolutely the right thing to do. And I had to get my chops back, you know, mm-hmm. but it was, all, it also felt right. It felt like becoming me again. And, you know, you can't underestimate the power of that when you've, when you've been really ill for a long time. As you were saying that I was thinking the correlation between, and I've heard this before and by no means am I scientific or medical, but I've heard mm-hmm. that illness is often a sign that you're not doing what you're supposed to. Not to say that it's always, because... No, I mean, illness can happen regardless, but there's no question that there are many, many factors that can contribute to illness and exacerbate Mm -hmm. illness. And once I sort of found my way back to life drawing, this is going to sound crazy, it may sound woo-woo, And I'm not a terribly woo-woo person, so your listeners can bear that in mind when I say this. Cal and I decided, I think it was 2003, that we were going to have a motto for that year. And Mm. it was choose joy. Mm. And that was going to inform all of our choices and decisions for that year. And it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. I ended up getting not all better. Mm-hmm. But significantly better through that directly and indirectly we ended up in a situation of rewiring our house which is like a whole ordeal to go through but the electrician and his apprentice who came in here was a wonderful guy really bright and funny so funny in fact that all they were rewiring the whole house so they were here two or three days a week for quite a long time. And I've never laughed so much in my life for literally hours. So you have me intrigued because to have a motto for a year, is this something that you often do? Or was that just like a one-off that you decided? We have done it in other years, but that was the magic year. Mm. That was the year when it just, everything came together. And that was the pivotal moment. It really was. It really was because it was during that rewiring that I rediscovered my mojo as an artist. It's, that's interesting wording, rewiring. I was being rewired at the same yeah. time. Yes. So yeah. shortly thereafter, you had the solo show Facets of Valerie. Facets of Valerie was at the location Toronto School of Art was at at the time, and they had a gallery available. Okay. And so I had it there. I took a few classes there. I was registered in a program, but I could only take it part-time because my health was still such, I I still to this day have stamina issues. And at that time I certainly did. And so I took some classes over a couple of years. So the show at the propeller, which was on the edge, the title of it was a group show for the professional practices class and it was at the propeller 
Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I did a very large artwork. And I did it as a photo-based hybrid media, you know, drawing and painting by hand, but digital elements and photographic elements and so on. So an approach that I've subsequently developed a lot more and has become one of my signature approaches. So I was going to say, I could see where this has led. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, in Facets of Valerie, I also had sort of groups of work. I had drawing, I had painting, and I had digital. And mm-hmm. then I had hybrids of of digital and traditional media. And yeah, I mean, one of the signature courses I teach is Tradigital Arts, so, mm-hmm. which is the marriage of traditional and digital. So it's a great love of mine. You also have had the good fortune of being a part of a couple of different residencies. Mm. Um, why don't we start by talking about the Prairie North in Grand Prairie, Alberta? Oh, Yeah, my heart sings just when I think of it. So I had had the good fortune of having abstract painter Harold Clunder as a teacher at Halliburton. And he announced at that course that this was the final course he was going to teach. (laughs) And, you know, was it something I said? (laughs) And I think that was the second time that it happened to me. And I was starting to feel, you know, like, what is there about me? But anyway, of course, it wasn't that. But he was hugely successful. And honestly, you know, Halliburton's, it's a wonderful place to teach, but he didn't need Halliburton. Let's put it that way. So I was in agony because he was a brilliant teacher. Certainly mm-hmm. for me, he was a brilliant teacher and for many other people as well. And I felt robbed of just the sort of teacher mentor I needed. So I just, with no hope at all, I just Googled his name and scrolled through and scrolled through and I found Prairie North. What's that? Prairie North Creative Residency. He's going to be a mentor there. Okay, I'll go to that. Where is it? Oh, it's in Grand Prairie, Alberta, which is five hours northwest of Edmonton. That's That's nearby. (laughs) So, yeah, I just thought, damn it, I'm going because this is too important for me. You know, once I had found, gotten, realized or reconnected with the art, you know, it felt very urgent that I nurture it as the best I possibly could. And so I knew this was the teacher for me. So I was going to follow him. And really it was a only a two week residency, but it was fantastic. And, you know, a mentorship was actually the perfect thing. So there were, I don't know, roughly a dozen artists Mm-hmm. And two mentors, I should mention Laura Vickerson, an Alberta artist and professor, was the other. And she does phenomenal work. And she had been at the Istanbul Biennale representing mm-hmm. Canada and so on. So, you know, this was very good stuff. And I also got to work closely with Peter von Tiesenhausen, who is an Alberta artist who's international in stature and does phenomenal work. And I got to assist him on a project and I became friends with all kinds of artists from around there. And some of whom have remained friends all these years later, like that was 2007, right? That's incredible. 
Yeah. So it survived that even though I've only been back once since then. I've participated in a couple of mentorships myself. There's something about being in that close knit group that is very dynamic. And even when you go off into the world and you don't see these people for a long time, you come back, it feels like you just come home to them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And, yes. you know, one or two of them have moved to Ontario or some of them have visited Ontario. So, I've, you know, I've been able to see them a little bit that way, but social media has been invaluable in my keeping in touch with them. Yeah. We went on to do a mentorship at the Burlington Arts Center. Yes. Now the Art Gallery of Burlington, but yes, George Whale, then director, was fantastic at setting up these mentorships, group mentorships that were free because they were funded. So, you know, I saw that a call for artists and it said new generation emerging or something. And I said, well, I'm, I wrote in my letter, I am an emerging artist. I'm not an emerging human. You know, I wrote the the letter and the application of my life for that because I desperately wanted to join it because I had had a show in 2010 called Boxed In, which was figure-based but conceptual around something anyone who's experienced the recent lockdowns will feel quite comfortable with, solitary figures constrained and enclosed in two small spaces. I knew that that germ of an idea had legs for expanding tremendously Mm -hmm. in terms of media and scale and conceptually playing with it. And so I thought I need a residency in part because I need that sort of mentorship. I need a mentorship because I need the mentor, but also because it, that kind of structure is so great for concentrating your focus and giving you impetus to make progress on a regular and sustained basis. Mm -hmm. So I was determined I was going to try. So I did. And the mentor was Judy Major Gerardin, who teaches at McMaster University. And I had never heard of her, but she was fabulous. She was so good. I'm a very (laughs) hardworking person. And I, I remember she was surprised by how quickly I arrived with how many ideas and sketches and, you know, mm-hmm. so on. So it, it meant we had a lot we could talk about and a lot I could develop. And that residency, let me see now, is a whole year. And then we got an exhibition at the end of it mm-hmm. in the main gallery. So that was fantastic. Yeah, Burlington was great for that when they were running those residencies. There's something so valuable about residencies, and I didn't realize yeah. it until I, I went on my first one. Like you was at Burlington, and the learning and the growth in my work was profound. Yeah, I can't, I can't compare it to anything else. And and the residency, There's no substitute. No, there no. really isn't. No matter what I do in my studio, it's not the same. Yeah, I have to say that was the first show where I saw your work. Oh, I think I had come across your name probably through Halliburton. Were you teaching at that point at Halliburton? I was teaching somewhere because I remember part of my application was I needed the structure because teaching was making it difficult. So I knew your name. I hadn't met you, but then I went to the show and I was blown away by the work that I saw there. Uh. 
you had these pieces and for lack of my better explanation of them, but they're skins. Can you explain that piece? Oh, yes, yes. That piece was called Skin Care. And it was a photo-based sculpture and sort of presented almost pizza box style without the, the outer box. So on the wall was a photo mosaic of like swatches of skin, very close up, representing many, many different colors of skin, vast human range. And then on the tabletop directly beneath that, or plinth top, was a grid of white jeweler's boxes, squares, with a mound of white rock salt in them, and a swatch of skin presented as an acrylic skin. So it was actually flexible and it was gently draped over the mound of rock salt. And again, those swatches represented the various colorations of human skin. And that made quite an impression on quite a few people, I think, that piece. <laughs> it really did, because I kept going back to it at the show. And Interesting. So fascinating. And I wanted to touch them, but I didn't. <laughs> so, well, you, you I know. I didn't your artwork. <laughs> I know some people did, because I occasionally would go sort of hide a little bit and mm-hmm. watch someone walk up to it tentatively and look around and then poke it. <laughs> But I was doing my due diligence as an artist and getting really close in to see. Yeah. But that honestly was a very powerful piece, Kim. And it did draw, like you said, a lot of people to it. So um, thank you. I had such interesting feedback. You know, I, I love presenting work publicly because of what other people find in my work that is beyond anything I intended. And I had some really large scale photographs of myself pressed against plexiglass. So distorted, flattened. And I remember one of the other artists, when I put it up, almost cried because of how I was totally unglamorous and I had no makeup. My hair was messily tied back in a a ponytail, you know, I, I was not looking my best at the time I took the photo. And so it was just really, really real. And, you know, for her, that hit her like a gut punch. Because mm. she said, it's beautiful, even though it has none of the hallmarks of feminine beauty that our culture purports. And that, you know, it never occurred to me that part of it. And Quan, who was one of the other artists in mm-hmm. the show, she brought a friend who, on seeing my housebound sculptures, which were plexiglass houses filled with photography of me pressed against plexi at different scales to super, super close up. And mm-hmm. her friend, who had been going through a lot of poverty and mental health issues and physical health issues, she saw it and burst into tears. Oh, wow. She'd never felt so understood by a piece of art. You know, chills. I'm getting goosebumps, actually, just remembering that. Because that's not, you know, that's not me. Mm -hmm. That's the right person seeing my work. And Mm -hmm. that is such a gift, right? Yeah, I, I think you have that ability, though. Your work has very powerful lines in it, but there's also color. There's a humanness in it. So people can come to it where they are. And I feel like... You have this incredible ability to draw people in with your pieces. Thank you. I was thinking of your redhead show that you had. Mm. Uh, 
I believe, was that 2019? It was the year before COVID. Even walking through that show, it was an experience. You guided the viewer through the gallery space. It wasn't just all on the wall. Exactly. I'm very much not an artist who makes stuff that goes on the wall and that's it. Yeah, you make it an experience. And oh, thank you. I think that's powerful to be able to do that. It's not the world against the art, but you actually immerse the viewer in the art. That is very much my intention. I love working with spaces specifically and designing for them. That's the my design self coming out. And because design is really about creating experience and working with the space. That heart space show at the Redhead was, I believe, my best exhibition to date. And I say that because I love working with the Redhead space Mm -hmm. and it gave me some opportunities that I really enjoyed. But I also came at the idea of the human heart from many, many different angles in terms of the artwork from almost Chinese ink brush painting, but Mm -hmm. done as an expressionist might, to large scale printmaking onto giant scrolls, to sculpture, to weird piles of things, (laughs) (laughs) to little uh, light boxes of what looks like medical imaging and and then giant black and white paintings. You'll probably remember those. I love the black and white paintings. (laughs) (laughs) Of of very anatomical hearts, but then poetically twisted. So that show is such a good representation of who I am. You know, Walt Whitman said, I contain multitudes. And that's me. Before I started working in many, many different media and formats, Cal used to say, you could have a group show of just your work. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go down a hundred different rabbit holes. But now as a more mature artist, a a mid-career artist, I go down all the rabbit holes, but I do it around a certain range of topics. Mm -hmm. You know, the human heart being a huge one, because what you're talking about and those experiences I recounted of, of people responding to my work Those are the things I care about. I care about vulnerability and empathy and barriers that people experience, whether they're in their own minds. I'm removing the word just because those can be the most powerful barriers of all or they're Mm -hmm. externally imposed. I think and human skin kind of bridges some of those things. I think Mm -hmm. that's what I have to look at. From a personal perspective, you know, I do approach things from a very personal perspective, but I see it all over the world, how desperately we need to look at all of these qualities, these human qualities that lead to us being humane. So I'm thinking about, as you said, you have these multitude of ideas, you use a vast array of media to express who you are. Can you talk a little bit about your process as an artist? Give me a day in the life of keeping it <laughs> and how do you organize all these thoughts? It's so sweet that you want to know how I organize them. <laughs> so I'm quite ADHD, okay? And so organizing becomes a whole, a whole funny thing. Now, that said, I do actually have all written out all the series that I'm starting to make for the new show that I have coming up. 
with the kinds of work I'm going to do and all of that. But, you know, we'll see what the final looks like compared to the list. I am an experimenter. So I come at my artwork from two ways, purely tactile experimentation, hands-on, just being curious about what things do and what happens when I try this or that or the other thing. Because you discover things in the studio hands-on that you could never dream up. And if one of the things that I object to about the art education system post-secondary in general, you know, obviously there are going to be exceptional professors or exceptional programs, but in general, there is a belief or it's taught that you must conceptualize and conceptualize and conceptualize. And then you submit a proposal for what you're going to work on. And then you're supposed to go do that. And I spent decades as a graphic designer, and that's exactly what graphic designers do. I didn't become an artist in order to be a graphic designer, just working in other media. Mm-hmm. I became an artist to make discoveries. And so really, it's a difference between academic approaches to some time-honored, wide-open discovery approaches. Mm-hmm. So that said... I don't hate conceptualizing. I love conceptualizing. I can't stop having ideas. So, and considering how that could be developed and how many ways that could be expressed and what I'm particularly interested in, if I have an idea, what form could that take that would add to its meaning, nuance it, create a a surprising or interesting experience for the viewer potentially to then help communicate, not necessarily something specific, but create an opportunity for them finding something in it, for them finding meaning or or ascribing something to it. And that's one of the joys of my life. And so I couldn't possibly limit myself to three or four or five media (laughs) because... Some of my ideas just need, you know, things like lawnmowers or chain link fences or I don't know. Of course. (laughs) Light boxes or whatever, right? You mentioned on your next project that you've made a list of what you're going to do. I know it's insane, isn't it? Is that your approach or is this just something that's out of the blue? I'm, I'm making this list. This show I'm having is because I'm part of the Redhead Gallery Artist Collective. And it means each of us gets a regular solo show at 18 to 21 month intervals. So when you get a regular gig like that, I think things start to change in your brain in terms of how you look at it. And I think that's what happened. But how it happened in the moment was... I was looking at having a show in March. It's since been scheduled uh, a few months later, but I've had a horrible year with family health crises and deaths in the family and wasn't even able to, to give it any thought until August. And normally I would have started working on it in January. And I thought, oh my God, how am I even going to do this? So I talked to an artist friend of mine, Elle, and she said, well, do you have any idea? And I said, well, I have had some ideas, you know, sort of float through my head over the course of the last few months. So, you know, I don't have nothing to base it on, but I I just felt completely at sea. Anyway, so she said, okay, shoot, just tell me every idea you've had 
And I did. And I wrote them down. And at the end of it, I realized I had a show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I call percolating. It's there. Yeah. It's, it's sort of working its way through the artist's mind. It's not out yet, but it's there. It's, it's crazy. And part of it was um, finally using a photo shoot I did two or three years earlier that I'd never done anything with, but it fit perfectly. The show is going to be called Burnt Offerings. And it's still about the human heart and the universal as well as intensely personal human experience of grief and love and loss. But I hope the people who come to it won't be like, oh, I'm not going to that. That sounds like a real downer that there'd be things of beauty and thoughtful things and touching things in it. So burnt is the operative word. Offerings is important too, but burnt first and foremost, there's going to be a lot of burnt things. Hmm, this or... sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's a thing uh, mm -hmm. that's typical of me, right? So I decide that one of the series I'm going to do is a series of drawings, part of which will be done using a wood burning tool. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to do that, right? Well, have I ever used a wood burning tool? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> but that's okay. I've seen this process before. <laughs> I do this with everything. You know, it's, it's like when I did the chains unlinked installation at the Art Gallery of Mississauga. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, I want to use some chain link fence in that. Oh, look, you can untwist the chain link so that it becomes zigzags. Oh. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, I should paint it. Oh, painting it doesn't go well. What could I do instead of painting it? Powder coating, industrial powder coating. So off we went to the industrial powder coater. Awesome job. And, and this is where I have to say, Cal just goes, okay, let's go. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, Cal and I have been together a long time now, and he's so used to me saying, Cal. I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> he does, depending on his mood, right? He either rolls his eyes or he smiles. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a lot better if I had, let's say, a couple of assistants in a larger studio because the scope and range that I think in and work in mm -hmm. would be much more manageable and poor Cal wouldn't end up having to do quite so much for my sake, but bless him. He's been a stalwart and faithful support. But that's important. I 100% think that's important. You have to have that support. Yes. Yes. I like that you have all these ideas and this writing down is new and knowing you, you don't keep a sketchbook, right? Oh, you know, I have, I, I do it intermittently. Yeah. Well, where so, do these ideas go, Kim? <laughs> well, um, I know someone who poetically describes them as an idea garden. Oh. And so I have random notes on my phone, on my computer, on post-it notes. And then I stick the post-it notes onto the cover of a binder that seems suitable. And then I <laughs> copy and paste and gather the ideas into a sensible list when it seems like that's a possibility. But, you know, I'll be in the middle. Uh, 
shoe shopping and I'll have to pull out my phone and and bring up the notes app and title it idea. <laughs> Guess how many of those I've got. Your phone must be really interesting to look at. <laughs> and occasionally because of what I'm doing or whatever, I can't even do that. So I'll use the voice memo mm. and I'll speak into the voice memo. I think at this point I've had enough ideas that it is unlikely I will live long enough to execute any of them unless at some point I become commercially somehow or, or mm-hmm. somehow financially successful. Okay. When you get those assistants, you just have yeah. to translate all your notes and gather them. Absolutely. And then we can get working on it. And honestly, mm-hmm. there's nothing I'd love more. You know, a lot of my heroes have fantastic professional studios with teams, right? And like Julie Mayretu and uh, William Kentridge and, mm-hmm. you know, on and on and on. Jeff Koons is not the model I'm looking for. I just, I just need to clarify that because he's, you know, well known for his delegation powers, which, you know, yeah, I'm more about making. I almost feel like you have a, a book of inspiration for artists just sitting there waiting to emerge. You know, writing books, you know, that's come up twice today already. I would love to start with one book in the world. I'm ADHD, so I'd like to put six out, but (laughs) I realize that you can't do all six simultaneously, much as it frustrates me. And of course, there are loads of great books out there Mm -hmm. written by fantastic creatives and artists and so on. And thank God, right? Mm -hmm. But honestly, there always needs to be more. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Right? Yeah, because there's something special in this one. There's something else special in that one. And it just, you need to get all of the different nuances and perspectives, I think. And so that's the justification I will use for finally getting my book out. I don't know if the creative inspiration will be the first book necessarily, but maybe I'll I'll do something else as a warm up to that. But yeah, thank you. That's very kind of you to say that. It would it just, be a good idea. It just seems like it would be a great way to get that off the phone. <laughs> There's definitely a lot there. And, and you know, yeah. my students get inundated with my ideas around creativity, creative practice, being an artist. That does naturally bring me to my last question, which is mm. if you had just one book, Kim, just one <laughs> that you had to recommend to a young artist, what would you recommend? Oh, my God just one again you know it is the queen of multiples right we could switch this up if you wanted two well who would be an artist that you'd recommend i think one artist i would recommend for the power of obsession yayoi kusama yeah for can you describe the work for anybody who doesn't know it yeah so yayoi kusama she was responsible for some pretty famous happenings in the 60s she's a japanese artist who was in new york for a long time and now is and is back in japan she has mental health issues Mm -hmm. but she is prolific and she produces large-scale installations that are stunning and immersive and overwhelming and she creates surfaces that are overwhelming and she has signature forms that she works with 
in huge quantities to create spaces and installations that are absolutely unique and absolutely her. Dots figure prominently, for example, polka dots. So she's an example of, first of all, she's East Asian. She's a woman Mm -hmm. and she's an East Asian woman of a certain generation. She certainly wasn't supposed to be doing stuff like this, culturally Mm -hmm. speaking. And she does massive work, huge work. And she's also, I believe, the most shown woman artist in the world. You know, there is a role model for all kinds of things. But, you know, part of her mental health issues includes a kind of obsessiveness. And Mm. a certain amount of obsessiveness can really help. Past that point, though, you want to keep healthy. (laughs) So for the most incredible polymath of conceptual art in a huge array of formats, media, everything from filmmaking to sculpture to photo base to everything, I would say Ai Weiwei, the -hmm. Chinese artist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, politically centered artist, human rights issues centered, astounding artist, just a genius. And then I'll stop at three. But okay. believe me, there are loads. Um, William Kentridge, who is a, a South African artist who first got my notice because, like me, he loves drawing and charcoal. And uh, he did an astounding collection of animated films frame by frame just drawing and erasing the charcoal I think on mylar but I can't remember for sure and just photographing each stage and they're improvised and honestly that is a man after my own heart but he is so much more than that even though those are at works of genius he's done operas and other kinds of films and he's a brilliant speaker so if you haven't watched one of his talks there are many many talks available Mm -hmm. by him on youtube and he articulates where he comes from and what he's about really really well and about creative process and it's interesting All three artists that you've mentioned, I have shared at some point with my students. They are good examples to share. And inspiring in so many different ways. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Kim, this has been a lot of fun and a lot of good laughs. (laughs) Time has flown. I can't believe we're at the end, honestly. I thank you so much for sitting down with me tonight. And I've really enjoyed this chat. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Likewise. And thank you for making such a hospitable place as these art conversations. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.